Chapter 16. What a Difference a Day Makes Christine Mann wasn't the only person who spent her evening staring up at the sky. Catherine Goebel stood outside on a warm October night in 1957 and watched the winking dot of light in the sky as it moved low across the horizon. At Langley Memorial Aeronautics Laboratory in Hampton, Virginia, and across the country, Americans turned their eyes skyward with a mixture of wonder and terror. As they tried to see Sputnik from their backyards, they asked themselves, Could the 183-pound metal sphere launched into orbit by the Russians see them too? It became a game as they surfed the radio dial, trying to lock onto the sound of the satellite beeping, a sound like that of an otherworldly cricket. This was Sputnik. In the 1940s, designing aircraft capable of flying beyond Earth's atmosphere had seemed too far-fetched. Now, with Sputnik circling overhead every 96 minutes, Americans wanted to know how the United States had fallen behind. The stakes were high, or it seemed that way at the time. First in space means first, period, said Senate Majority Leader Lyndon B. Johnson. Second in space is second in everything. The challenge of space. Catherine Goebel had wondered what the next challenge would be for Langley researchers, and Sputnik gave her the answer. Space had long been a, quote, dirty word, unquote, at airplane-focused Langley, something that the researchers weren't really supposed to spend their time working on. Congress had warned the researchers not to waste taxpayer money on, quote, science fiction, unquote, and dreams of manned spaceflight. The laboratory was tasked with designing and improving aircraft that had practical applications right here on Earth. That didn't stop Langley engineers from imagining how missile shapes and rocket engines and solutions to reentry problems involved in high-speed flight research might apply to space vehicles. Any aircraft that traveled into space first had to pass through the layers of Earth's atmosphere, accelerating through the sound barrier and then escaping the pull of Earth's gravity before settling into 18,000 miles per hour speed that characterized objects locked into low Earth orbit. On the return trip, the same vehicle would have to skid through the friction of the increasingly dense atmosphere, encountering heat that could reach 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit before falling back to Earth. Now that the Russians had a head start in space, the United States was eager to join the race, but engineers debated about how to start. Some favored an aircraft design like a plane that could elegantly orbit Earth and then glide back through the atmosphere, but that might take too much time. With beating the Russians now a national priority, engineers felt pressure to find the quickest, surest way into space. The Flight Research Division, where Catherine Goebel worked, specialized in doing research involving real planes, not parts or models like people who worked in the wind tunnels. Another group at Langley, the Pilotless Aircraft Research Division, PARD, specialized in rockets and had set up a test range on Wallops Island off the Virginia coast where test rockets could be launched. In previous tests, the group's rockets had reached speeds of Mach 15 in flight and the engineers in PARD were confident that their vehicles were powerful enough to lift a satellite and human passenger into orbit. The engineers in the Flight Research Division and in PARD were eager to test their ideas about how to catch up to Russians in space. 
from the NACA to NASA. A number of agencies wanted to manage the space program. The United States Air Force, the United States Naval Research Observatory, and the Army Ballistic Missile Agency bid for the assignment. But the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, where Catherine, Mary, Dorothy, and the other female computers worked, was chosen to lead the efforts. It was an exciting time for them all. Hampton, Virginia, was going to be the center of the space program. In October 1958, the United States government combined all of the various space-related groups. The expanded agency had a new name, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA. The NACA had become NASA, but the change meant more than just a different name. While the NACA had been quiet, obscure, and largely unnoticed, NASA would be high-profile and high-stakes and scrutinized by the world. And the women working here would have higher-profile jobs, too. The work done by the NACA engineers had been hidden behind the more public operations of the military and commercial aircraft manufacturers. NASA was tasked to, quote, provide for the widest practical and appropriate dissemination of information concerning its activities, unquote. That meant the work done at NASA belonged to every American. All of its actions, its moments of triumph, and its heartbreaking failures and tragedies were to be laid bare to the citizens and broadcast on television. Catherine Goebel also wanted to beat the Russians. She didn't want the Sputnik challenge to go unanswered. In addition to national pride, she personally longed to do something untried, untested, and unexplored. Catherine wanted to be a part of the team that would figure out how to send humans into space. The End of West Computing As the National Aeronautics and Space Act of 1958, which called for the creation of NASA, made its way through Congress, another memo quietly circulated through the Langley Research Center, the former Langley Memorial Aeronautical Laboratory. Quote, The West Area Computing Unit is dissolved. Unquote. Slowly but surely, women from West Computing, like their white counterparts, had begun to receive permanent assignments in different engineering groups. Now, only nine women remained in Dorothy's pool. Dorothy Vaughn had seen this day coming since the East Computing Pool was disbanded in 1947. Each new facility in the laboratory fueled the demand for specialization among its professionals, including the mathematicians. The idea of operating a central computing pool had become obsolete. The computing pool had created rare opportunities for women at the NACA. Getting hired by the laboratory as a professional mathematician had been an important and groundbreaking step for women, especially African-American women. But now, times were changing. Aeronautical research had become more complex, and the laboratory needed mathematicians with specialized knowledge. Women like Dorothy Hoover, Catherine Goebel, and Mary Jackson had gotten their start in West Computing and moved on. Now it was time for the pool itself and its leader to move on too. The days of the West Computing office had come to an end. The end of the West Area Computing was bittersweet to Dorothy Vaughn. On the one hand, it meant the end of segregation at Langley. Now... The black women would work with white engineers and white computers instead of having to stay in their own office. Dorothy had worked hard to support the careers of women like Catherine Goebel and Mary Jackson, 
and give West Computing a reputation for doing work that was as good as that of their white colleagues. The end of West Computing was, in many ways, a long-fought-for victory. The standards upheld by the women of West Computing created opportunities for a new generation of women with passion for math and hopes for a career beyond teaching. On the other hand, it meant the end of Dorothy's career as manager. It had taken her eight years to reach her seat at the front of the West Computing Office. For seven years after that, she ruled a room full of black female mathematicians doing research at the world's most prestigious aeronautical laboratory. But now she, too, was being moved to another group with a new boss. Dorothy was 48 years old in October 1958. Her older children were now entering college. She was proud of the way she had navigated through the days of racial segregation, proud of whatever small share she might claim in fighting prejudice with intellectual merit. During her years at West Computing, Dorothy had watched scores of women move from the computing pool to other positions within the laboratory. She and the other female computers had proven that given the opportunity and support, women were just as smart as men. Dorothy had never been one to linger over the past. For better or worse, Langley's fresh start was giving Dorothy Vaughn a fresh start as well.